Can I read from Luke chapter 7? Verse 36, it's a fairly well-known passage. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now, Jesus, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with, them, with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both of them. Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, You see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus, we pray by your Spirit this morning that you would maybe remind us again of your love and that you would also, in that process, remind us again of what you have done. Will you open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to see the gift that we have in you? that will awaken a passion in us that we've never known. Holy Spirit, will you touch our hearts this morning? Move from our heads to our hearts, from our hearts to our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. So, What we're thinking about this morning is less of a a, a head thing than a heart thing. How do we know what passion looks like? How do we know uh, what people are excited about? It's about what we speak about. It's about what we get excited about, we get animated about. We live at a time where I think it's politically quite uncomfortable and incorrect 
to to talk about um, sin, to talk about our struggles. But it seems to me that unless we come to terms with our struggles and who we are without God, we will never come to a very passionate relationship with God. So, on a scale of, say, over here is Simon, the guy who invited Jesus to his house, and he invited Jesus to his house because he used to invite celebrities. Made him look good in the community, and he was open-minded, and he would invite anybody. And we could talk at a table, and he could be impressed with my hospitality, and I could uh, have my friends interview him, and then we could talk about the person who had been there later on. Very respectable scenario played out in many homes, right? On this side, we have a woman who we don't know her background. We just know that she was a prostitute. We know that she sold her body. We know that she was despised, certainly by Simon and his ilk. And she came into the same room, the same dinner party, but she wasn't invited. And that's what they did. You could go in. And she stood behind Jesus. And she had no, no, no illusions about herself. The only funny thing is when you talk to people who are in those positions, they have a, an incredibly accurate view of themselves. They know exactly what's going on. Just don't know how to get out of it. And Jesus had obviously met her somewhere and responded to her in a way that no man, in her experience, had responded before. He didn't want her, he wasn't going to use her, and he wasn't going to respond to anything that was sexual or anything that was going to be using her. He, he, he responded to her as a, a human being and as a woman. And he, in the process, touched something in her that profoundly changed her heart. And she came with all she had, which was perfume that probably was used seductively. It was expensive, and her clients liked it. And it was probably her sort of the most valuable thing she had, the tool of a trade, if you will. And in the presence of behind Jesus, even behind Jesus, she must have had all kinds of stares and glares. But when you're in a politically correct structure that you've set up, you get trapped in it. So nobody would speak. And eventually she couldn't contain herself and she wept at Jesus' feet. And she made a fool of herself. She broke, she opened the perfume over Jesus and and it was an emotional scene. And Simon, being very polite, doesn't say anything. And Jesus looks at him and reads his mind and has a prophetic word and says, Simon, this is what's going on here. And it would be really cool to see you on your knees, weeping. Because the evil in you, Simon, makes this girl look like a saint. 
Because the values in the kingdom are very, very different. And Simon, because you hold on to the values of this world, that's how you will be judged. But I have come into this world to raise up the poor and the lost and the broken and the despairing. The people who sit at your table probably use this woman and then judge her in public. That's how it works. And the question I have for myself and I have for you is, how is the passion with Jesus this morning for you? Where is it? God's passion for you has never changed. He's gone to the cross for you. He's poured out his heart to you. And he's saying, I am here for you. You have absolutely no idea how much I adore you and love you individually, call you by name. I know everything you've ever done. And I am, I love you. If you were like me, if that passion isn't very high, it's because I've moved. It's not because he has. And I want to suggest to you that unless we humble ourselves and really allow God to tackle us day by day in who we are, we will never know the passion. You can't know the wonder of a miracle of God healing somebody who is sick unless you know Well, let me say, I'm riddled with cancer, and I have two months to live. Uh, Cheryl has a cold. Cheryl comes up and tells you a story about how somebody prayed for her, and Jesus healed her cold. Then I come up a week later and say, I was riddled with cancer. There's not a sign of it. Jesus healed me. Which would stick with you? Which would you talk about? Which would you go, man, that was impressive? The greater the degree of understanding we have of our predicament or our state without God is the degree to which we will be, gratit- we will be grateful and passionately thankful because he touched my life when I couldn't do anything. If you think that God is impressed with anything you bring to him, you haven't seen him. Our default position is Simon. Let's have a conversation about Jesus as the guest at our table. He is welcome. He's just not worshipped. How do I know that? Because the passion I have is not given to him. It's given to other things. Anything that receives my passion that is greater, if I do this to anything other than Jesus, that is my God. doesn't matter what I say. What do you think is greater in this room? Passion or pride? Are we willing to say, Lord, do anything. Do anything in me, through me. I really don't care. I don't care what other people believe. think. I am desperately desiring to know your heart in mine. That's what's going to rock this town. Not polite discourses. Passionate people. Good to my shoelace. Um, passionate people. You know, that's, I mean, I'm talking about 1 John 3. 
And that's where he's coming from. Try another, try another illustration. I'm trying to, to, to press buttons in a constructive way to evoke responses in a constructive way that are in the emotions. I'm trying to say to us that so often defend ourselves that the more we understand that we are sinners, that we are evil, that we are like Peter, we, we say yes, Lord, and then we screw it up when, it's under, when we're really actually in the, in the thick of things. We, we default into our weakness or our denials. And God knows that. And the more we know that, the more he is able to then work. That's what he was doing with Peter. So Peter would eventually, as with Paul, says, I boast about my weaknesses. In other words, I know what I'm not. I know what I am. And I know that without Jesus, I have no hope. And I'm just like that woman. She was more graphically there, but I am just like her. Some of our lives, including my own, has been pretty graphically there. Know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be under the judgment and the gaze of people who think they know you or think they know what's going on. And the only place you have is the feet of Jesus and even then you don't even know it's going to work. But it's a beautiful thing when he raises you up and you go, thank you. Thank you that you were faithful. Thank you that you meant it. And you do mean it. Go to the website of children who were lost in B.C. I did that this week to try and just look. And you get to this website and it's the Children's Society of Canada and their tagline is because the search must go on. Because anybody who has been a parent, imagine, and, and this will trigger, I'm sorry, but it will trigger some memories for people, and it, you know, uh, if you've been adopted, if you've been uh, taken away from your parents, if you've never known your parents, if you've had people who you don't know what happened to, you know what I'm saying. You go to the website and they talk about the search must go on for lo- lo- loved ones. And they say when a child first goes missing, the police, the media, and the community all rally together to help the terrified and grieving family search for their child. But as time goes by, that involvement gradually decreases, leaving the family to continue the search alone. And you scroll through pictures of young people. You wonder what happened. What happened to them? And then you realize that That's God's heart. Until we are found by Jesus, we're on his webpage, missing. Missing. But his heart never changes, it never stops, he never stops the intensity. He is always, every day, saying, I don't just want you found, I want you home. Now, when you've been lost and you are found, that's quite a deal. You don't forget that. If you're pretending to be found, it's quite easy to spot when you're not really home. Particularly if I know your parent. 
See, if I know your father, and I call you by name, and I ask you to come up here and say, what's it like to be home? And you mutter incomprehensible language. I'd put my arm around you and say, you poor thing. You haven't been found yet. You've got the theory of going home, but you haven't been home. Your heart's not there. Because when you are embraced by your father, you don't forget that embrace. When you come to terms with your brokenness and your lostness, and your father draws you up and says, Welcome home. You were born for this moment. You don't forget that. It changes your life. And you look at the person who you're married to, and you look at your children, and you look at every single human being you know, and you go, lost or found. It's not a matter of theological persuasion or just, oh, it depends. A child who knows their parent has been found by a parent is changed for life. That's the heart of the Christian gospel. The God who loves his children and researches for them sends his son to search for them and draws them to a place which is his cross where he provides a bridge over the moat between the mansion and hell and he says, come back. And when you've come back, you know it. And for the rest of your life, like that woman, you go, Jesus, thank you so much that you went to the cross for me. Thank you that you've given me new life and new hope. Thank you that I was lost and was found. I want to walk into that for the rest of my life. But if it's no big deal, that'll be boring. John wrote in his letter as an older man, I'll just read you one testimony of a father. He said, whose daughter was found, he said, There are no words in the English language and probably the whole of human language that can capture the quantity and quality and the magnitude of my gratitude. I just think if this church is going to grow and we're going to actually see people's lives changed, we have to ask God to touch us deeply. Deeply. And cut the crap of our laziness and our spoiled dispositions and our arrogance and our inviting Jesus to Sundays and if we've got time to other things and go, forgive me, Father. I've lost the passion. I'm entitled to stuff. John was in his 80s when he wrote his letters. He knew the other Gospels. And why was John in his 80s passionate? Why would he write as an 80-year-old man, or certainly an older man, how great is the Father, the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God? And that is what we are. 
Simon's dinner parties do not change lives. People meeting Jesus one by one and having their hearts transformed change lives. Passion changes lives. Hearts that beat to the feet of God change lives. How did John get there? Very quickly. John was a young guy, probably a little older than Walter sitting at the back there, working you up there. But that's okay. Walter's about 18, he told me. That's why I asked him. Not much older than John would have been. And John would hang out with his brothers. He was impacted by his brothers. They followed John the Baptist at first, 70 miles from where they lived. They trekked there, walked there, because something was going on. And there was something going on inside them. And they said, there must be more life than fishing. And we romanticize these things and say, oh, God's got to do this big, wonderful work. And you go, you know what? God responds to the people who search. And John and his brothers had gone all the way to John the Baptist and they had listened to John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, he's the one. That's cool. It's a real cool uh, uh, image of leadership, actually. It's always pointing people to Jesus. And they went to Jesus and in Jesus' presence they discovered someone, as we've talked about before, who brought them to life. And what was one of the things that happened with them? That in the context of their lives, in the context of the life that they knew so well, fishing, Jesus appears one morning when they were washing their nets. When you don't catch fish because you catch fish at night, and he says, a carpenter from Nazareth with some of her reputations beginning to build, will you go and fish counterintuitively? Go and catch some fish. They're out there. And there's a whole crowd of people. They all know these guys. And Peter starts, and I love Peter's honesty. He says, but, but, but. And then he goes, he must have seen something in Jesus' gaze. And he says, okay, because you say so, we'll go. And they go, and they catch the biggest load of fish they've ever caught, probably never in that region before. And they go, there's something going on here that we need to pay attention to. In the very familiarity of your life, where do you think Jesus is standing right now saying, Go over there and do that. And over here you're saying, Lord, I want to know you better and I, want to, I, 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 I think I want to know you, um, but I've got to go shopping now. And he says, go there. And you say, but it doesn't make sense. That's my imaginary. It doesn't make sense. We need to understand that the road to miracle, the road to disciple, is one step at a time along a very ordinary path, very familiar, very mundane, with extraordinary consequences. Some of us are praying prayers, asking God to do things in our lives, and he said yes to us probably months ago. And he says, my problem is I can't get through to you. Because you only give me this time and this time and this time and then you tell me how I'm going to do it, when I'm going to do it and how long it should take. So I can't get beyond your mind. 
And how this works is that I capture your heart and that changes your mind. And so Jesus and John tracked together for years, for three years. And John saw Jesus do remarkable things. And John, you remember, I'm just cutting through to the quick here, John at the Last Supper. I mean, John's seen the miracles. He's been used by God. He's done healings himself. And he's tracked his best friend is Peter. So different in some ways, although John was called a son of thunder, which meant he had a bit of a temper at first. And, and they, they end up in the, in the, at the Last Supper, and Jesus is talking about being betrayed, somebody betraying him. Where's John sitting? John's sitting in the, he's in the inner circle. It's John, Peter, and James. They're the ones who go to the top of the mountain. They're the ones who stood really close to Jesus. John's this young guy getting mentored by Jesus, and he's, he's sitting right next to him, and he leans against him. And he says, who is it? He doesn't get told, but then he gets told it's the one who does this. Who's at the crucifixion? All the other guys have fled. John is there. And he experiences Jesus on the cross saying, John, your mother. Mum, there's your new son. And he, he spends certainly the rest of his life with Mary living in his home. John, on the morning of the resurrection, is the first one to get to the, the tomb. And he looks in and he sees the grave clothes. And Peter comes in and sort of pushes it past and checks it out for real, you know. What I'm trying to say is John had experiences of God that transformed his life and that sustained his life for the next 60 years with a passion that never seemed to cease. He was the one who walked with Peter and uh, up the, at the temple steps and they saw this crippled man. And they said, and, you know, we don't have money, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he saw the healing happen. And so he writes, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, to expose the work of the devil, that we live in a kingdom of darkness and until we come to terms with Jesus and his kingdom, we will have no power to be different, to love, to know forgiveness, to know power to be different in any way. And so John distills Christianity down to a love that is lavished upon us by our Father. So, what do we do with that? I think we just walk into that. What does that mean? It means continuing, if you haven't ever, living from a place of... I'm not talking about being baby. I'm not talking about being a baby. I'm talking about saying, Father, thank you that you love me. I keep on saying this. Take the most dramatic experience of love in your life, step into that experience, let that love that you might have felt for somebody else wash over you and say thank you that that is the sum token of how you love me. And that is my starting point after the resurrection. There is no place for Christians to sing miserable songs about the cross. Don't you find that anemic? I do. Oh God, thank you that you forgive. I, I find it totally anemic. 
I want to sing, absolutely you forgive me. Absolutely I need it. But it's a proclamation of something that I've really tasted. So the honor and the glory is about the difference it's made. Not this ongoing paranoia about my sinfulness. Do you understand what I'm saying? The less you know the Father, the more you obsess about how poor you are. The more you know the Father, the more you accept your poverty and you move into something else. And that is actually what John says. He says, he talks about sin and lawlessness, and I'm not going into it all because I don't need to. What's he saying? He's saying, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that you might take, he might take away your sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. So you go, shoot, there's more rules. He goes, no, that's not the point. The only illustration I can think of is marriage. It's when, you, when you're married, you behave in a certain way. Right? You should, right? But you don't, you, you have that marriage always in your mind. Everywhere you go, everything you do, you have that relationship primary in your mind. It determines what you do and how you do things. Some things are appropriate, some things aren't. And Jesus and John are really saying that's what it's like. I'm not asking you to keep rules. I'm just saying when you keep my company, these are the things we do. And in my company, stuff like sin or rebellion, they they kind of diminish. Because don't remember, we have a love relationship here. And the love relationship guides everything. Not the rule relationship. So how's your love life? How's your love life with Jesus? I'm not being silly. How's your love life with Jesus? How's the passion? How's it stirring? How's it drawing you in? How's it causing you to come further? And I'll tell you something, you will not have a love life with Jesus if there's no investment in that. No matter how much he loves you, you do counseling. Some of us have been through some rocky relationships. No matter how much one person tries, if the other one doesn't engage, it doesn't impact the relationship positively. The same is true with God. Except in this case, God is pursuing each one of us passionately, unconditionally and relentlessly. And for once in your life, this is one relationship where you are responsible. And he says to you, you're running away. You're full of fill in the blank. I love you. I'm not going away, but I'm calling you. And you're scared or you're shy or you don't believe. So deal with it. Tell me about it. And I can build this relationship. I'll take responsibility. If you'll dance with me, I'll teach you the steps. That's what John's life was about. Three things to close. How do you do this? Firstly, reside close to Jesus' heart like John did. What does that mean? It means live in the awareness of Jesus' love for you. Period. Stop trying to think your way through and... You know, it's the woman saying to the man in a marriage, please stop answering me back, just give me a hug. And that's kind of what Jesus says often. He says, thank you very much for your thoughts, just let me embrace you. I don't know how to do that. Well, then you're really dysfunctional, so let me embrace you and I'll help heal you. Receive his love that is lavished upon you without measure. Right now, this morning. God loves you. He hasn't got any more. It's all yours. And if you don't know his love and you don't know his presence in your life, 
it's because he's pouring it over you and he's saying, you have become so numbed or so rebellious or so bitter. And I don't judge you with that. All I'm saying is, until you allow me to enter, you'll carry on telling me it's my issue and I'm telling you it's your issue. But I can, help, I can heal it. But I will heal it in the context of community, not in privacy. God's love is absolutely poured out over every single one of us this morning. All we need to do is to know the desperation of our position like that woman and say, God, I'll do anything to know that more. I'll give you the tools of my trade. I'll give you things that I trust in and I'll lay them at your feet and say, Father, Jesus, I have nothing worthy. I have nothing that will take the place of a love relationship with you. Because there's something in my heart that is crying for that. And there's no human being that can give it to me. And I've tried. That's where John's coming from. How great is the love of the Father. Reside close to Jesus' heart. Receive his love. Read his story. Read the stories of Jesus. That's a little discipline and effort, but do it. And then relax in the relationship. And that means operate from the day by day of thank you, Jesus, that your life is in me. Thank you that your spirit is in me. And I'm giving you this time. And I'm going to plug one more time. The soaking prayer time is a symbolic stake in the ground in this church. It is very deliberately four hours on Thursdays between 5 and 9 that is a total waste of time is in the middle of summer how inconvenient is music playing and what you do sit there and listen or lie down or dance I mean come on but it is an opportunity to say Jesus will you touch my heart not my head because I'm not walking into dogwood to intellectually try and work out something, I'm walking in to say, Lord, here I am, and I need to allow you, I want to allow you to release your spirit in me so that my heart will be soft and touched by you, and I haven't got a clue how you do that. Other than that, I'm coming with my brothers and sisters saying, all I know is I need it. Why is it a stake in the ground? Because at a particular time, a particular place, and it demands particular effort. The degree to which you invest irrationally in your relationship with God and Jesus will be the degree to which you worship him with passion. And this is as inconclusive as that. Let's pray. That's a huge invitation. This is actually really, really good news. If you're missing it, it's good news. It's not judgment. The judgment only comes in when we want to be God ourselves. The good news is Jesus saying, you know, I am the one who's come to bring life. And I invite you into it. So why don't you just bring to God this morning, wherever you are. If I asked you to come, this is not judgment, please don't misunderstand this. This is um, a kind of, uh, I don't know, just owning up to us wherever we're at in order that God can fill us up. So 
if I'm really dry and empty and said, if you called me up right now, I would probably run out of this building. I'd have nothing to say. Well, then God knows that anyway, because he knew what Simon was thinking. And you can say, Jesus, I'm so dry, and I haven't got a clue about what he's talking about, but it would be nice to be excited about you. And the place to go is not into what you need to do. The place to go is just opening our heart and saying, Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that if there's anything sitting on my heart right now that I'm feeling guilty about or compromised about or upset about, I can just bring that to you. So you bring that to the cross. And he looks at you and goes, I'm so thrilled that you're finally offering it to me. Because I don't condemn you. So if there's anything, give it to him. Because John said he has come to destroy the work of the devil. And the devil sucks the life out of us. And that can go quickly. We don't have to sit there for lots of time. And then just ask him to fill that place with his presence, his life, and lead you for the next step. What is the next step of how do I walk into a passionate love affair with you? Jesus, thank you that you've already walked right into my heart and said, John, I love you more than you imagine. You haven't got a clue how much I love you. I love you more than you love Carmen and Michelle. I love you more than you love Cheryl. I love you more than you love anybody else. I am passionately in love with you. And I say yes to you, the cry of your heart. Now, I don't understand the fullness of what that means. All I know is it sounds good. And it stirs my heart. And it gives me hope. And he says, so if you just, we just keep tracking, more and more of that will melt in to your heart and life. And you will come on fire. And Jesus has that for each of us. So you tell him this morning, do you want to be Simon? Or do you want to be the woman with the alabaster jar? If you choose Simon, well, there's not much more to say. (laughs) Thanks for the meal. If you choose the woman at the well, he just will embrace you and say... My son, my daughter, let's keep growing and moving. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. It's out of love that life will happen. It's out of love that power will come. It's out of love that healing will be released. Relationships will be restored. Strength in the midst of strife will be given. So Holy Spirit, will you just come and release your power to back up the words that I'm speaking in your name. Will you release the power of your love? Will you release the power of hope? Will you release the power of your presence that helps us know that we are dearly, dearly beloved children and that you're still working with us? And as we come to break bread together, we just ask you to fill us up that we would know that we are those who have been lost but are found. We might have been dry, but we're being filled up because you are real, you are present, and you're way beyond our understanding. So, Lord, I pray for the release of passion among us, the passion of a love relationship with Jesus. 
So it just gets more and more crazy, but more and more wonderful. I pray that you will release us to be passionate with our friends and the people around us, and it won't matter. And we can introduce them to you, Jesus, as the one who took the Simon out of us and put the heart of that woman who knew the grace of a loving father like she'd never known in her life. In Jesus' name we pray, and we praise you, Lord. Amen. That's such cool news. I could actually sit there and talk for the next hour. You'd be uh, on the love of God. But we're going to sing a song now called The Power of Your Love as we come to break bread together.